All right, I gotta I gotta collect myself real quick. You gotta on collect that. yourself. You gotta collect yourself coming off that. <laughs> I wasn't prepared for you to say nothing and then just hit record after I say having no shame to just pee and shit in public. Yeah, we had to come into this off a natural starting point, especially because there's going to be some (laughs) content in here that's such a Debbie Downer note. It's nice to at least start off with a laugh. We broke character (laughs) before it even started. We we broke kayfabe here. We took off the wrestling mask. Yeah, ever so slightly. It's like that time that they did the live action show on ABC and Jamie before. Fox started laughing partway through. Yeah. Uh, it's like that. I broke the fourth wall partway through. <laughs> well, obviously some of the podcasts and some of the reactions we do that do the best are ones that have honest, genuine, emotional responses. As I learned, obviously this past weekend, reacting to my Niners, glowing it. And obviously YouTube viewers from all around the country coming in to feast on my tears. It's the best way to grow on YouTube is to put all of your tears. And when you can't put your own tears, traffic in other people's tears. Always post reactions of people crying. It, it is the best way to traffic in success on social media. It's almost built into the algorithm. Like I can't prove that it's built into the algorithm, but I know it's there. I know it's part of that math equation that brings us to whatever the recommended video is. I was actually watching the social dilemma for the first time a couple nights ago, just in my binge watching kind of experience, just to kind of figure out how social media works and the algorithms. Mm-hmm. I didn't get as crazy invested as some people did after that movie initially came out like I thought it was okay I thought it was a decent documentary I thought how they blended the movie cinematic storytelling they had there with the actual documentary elements was a little bit more unique definitely they know what they're doing they they had the recommend this Niners fans tears if it was more of an instant reaction as you said in your video I was thinking we probably could have got some Mahomey tears off of that one it's a debate over who made their game worse you will not put my tears out here I will not put my tears on display because I'm not that invested as a fan. Also, as someone who doesn't use social media very much, except for, you know, creating original content every now and then, uh, The Social Dilemma, highly recommend for anyone who has not seen it yet. It's a very good documentary. Yeah, it's worth a watch. It's worth a Google, at the very least. It's worth a Google. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I see what you did there. But as far as the, these games, these title games, uh, the big debate was uh, over who blew their game worse. I think for my money, and this is not just bias as an Irish fan, I think it's the Chiefs. You go into the game as a oh, touchdown yeah. favorite. You're up 21 to three. You score touchdowns on the first three possessions. You should just walk away easily with that victory, especially when you have the greatest quarterback to ever pick up a football on your team. Oh, no question. No, it's the Chiefs. There's there's no way the Chiefs, even if the Chiefs had Jimmy Garoppolo at quarterback and the, the 49ers had Patrick Mahomes at quarterback and the exact same results happened, it still would have been the Chiefs because that was an all-timer of a collapse. Uh, it's the worst collapse in the NFL since Aaron Rodgers' collapse a week ago. Uh, that's kind of how that one works out sometimes. There just happened to be two of those in the same playoff. There was almost three of them. The Rams almost did it with the Bucks also. So there was almost three of them in the same playoffs when, you know, maybe we get one every playoffs. I don't think we had one like that last year, but we did have in all the controversy of the Saints pass interference call. We forget to talk about the Saints blew like an 18 point lead in that game. Oh, the, the Texans blew a 24-0 lead against the Chiefs two years ago, and they've gone <laughs> eight and 25 since. I forgot about that one. When you really think about horrible comeback losses, that one has to be up up there. I know it was very early on in the game, but it's such a huge lead to get outscored by 50 the rest of the way. It only took three quarters, too. It was 24-0 in the second quarter, 
Texans in the lead. They were going to play the Titans in the AFC Championship at home and then play the Niners in the Super Bowl. Like there was a non-zero chance the Texans were going to win the Super Bowl that year. And they were down 28-24 at halftime. 24-20 in the second quarter. They were down 28-24 at halftime. I want to do like a six-part documentary on this Houston Texans team over the last two years. Every year on the podcast, we celebrate the anniversary of the Houston Texans blowing a 24-0 lead to the Chiefs. So anytime it gets mentioned, I need to talk about how amazing it is that since that moment, they've gone 8-25, and gone through four different head coaches, and have only Davis Mills and Rex Burkhead to show for all of their losing because they traded all their draft picks to the Dolphins. They gave away DeAndre Hopkins and J.J. Watts, so they gave the Cardinals their best run of football in the last 10 years. And whoever gets Deshaun Watson is going to have the next 10 years of a franchise quarterback. So they not only dismantled their team in like a year, they also funded three different franchises' most successful runs of the last 10 years, all by just being completely inept and having a team pastor being the owner running the entire franchise. Well, we did joke about this off air in the past that we believe the Houston Texans are really just a shadow organization, a shadow front for other organizations to pick apart. Basically, they Mm -hmm. are the farm system to every other team. As you mentioned, all those stars leaving to aid other franchises that are hoping to pursue titles. If you're Bill O'Brien, that's a crazy fall from grace to be involved in, to go from a 24-0 lead to being fired by week four of the following year. I know Bill O'Brien was never the most job secure guy in the world towards the end, but this is going to lead into our conversation about Brian Flores at some point, which is not only was Bill O'Brien a white dude as a coach in the NFL, he was super successful as a head coach. He won four division titles in six years, some of them with Brian Hoyer as his quarterback. And still nobody wants to touch him because of how he burned every good grace that he had with the way that ended in Houston. He burned every good grace in the NFL. By again, we laughed at the Jaguars for being like, remember they were up 12 points on the Patriots in the fourth quarter about to go to the Super Bowl. Three years later, they had the number one pick in the draft. It took Houston six months to do what the Jaguars did in three years. It took them six months to dismantle their entire franchise after that. Like I said, I want to do just a six, eight part documentary on how a team pastor literally took over control of the organization, praying with the owner. All of a sudden, the owner gives him control of his entire team and just dismantles everything that almost won a Super Bowl two years ago. And that's why, and we've had this conversation, you mentioned the Brian Flores stuff. It makes me just wonder and think bad organizations are just going to bad organizations sometime. And sometimes assuming racism, which is a big card that's been thrown out here in the last couple of days, can also just as easily be explained with incompetence. Like the example of Stephen Ross paying Brian Flores to lose games. That sounds like the ultimate level of incompetence by an owner that I've ever heard. And it takes away from the spirit of the game. I've heard arguments that Stephen Ross on that basis alone should have his team taken away from him. And we're talking about what would install actual change in this regard. I think gain out some of these owners who are just bad at owning organizations would make a big difference. Whether they're racist or incompetent, at least having rules in place that could filter out the swamp, as they say, right, would go a long way. Like there was one rule that was suggested a few years ago for NBA tanking that I really liked. I know it would never happen, but the idea that if your team hadn't made the playoffs in such and such years, then you enter a probationary period. And if you still (laughs) suck within that probationary period, then you have to forfeit the rights to your franchise. Again, no, it will never happen, but something like that would go a long way in most of these sporting organizations. There's an easy 
solution to this and it's relegation. You know, European soccer does it all the time. It's a really easy solution to this problem. The thing is, American sports leagues have crafted a system where there there is no accountability for being a terrible owner. One, you have all the protections in the world because the money is always going to come in regardless of what you do. I saw yesterday, after everything that happened with the Washington football team, top three highest selling jerseys on fanatics.com, new Washington commanders jerseys. It's appalling. Like no matter what, people are not going to hold their financials. They're not going to not continue investing time, money, and resources into these sports leagues. Therefore, there's no accountability to change there. To the point of Stephen Ross and owners getting kicked out, I wish there was more accountability in sports. I think the practical way that this is going to play out is having these owners die 20, 30 years from now. Like Stephen Ross is in his 80s. I can say pretty confidently the owner of the Houston Texans probably racist considering he's great friends with Mitch McConnell. I think pretty safe to say might be a little racist, but his dad's also the one who had the inmates running the asylum comment a few years ago and he died and now his son takes over. So there's only so much there can be in this situation. I just wish there was more accountability for Dan Snyder. Uh, Stephen Ross is a different case because it's not necessarily toxic workplace or alleged racism or in the case of Dan Snyder, also a sexual assault that was settled 10 years ago that has not really come to the light of day. His great crime in this one seems to be more against the rules of the NFL and the tanking game of if he is paying people to lose games, it looks really bad on the league. And so that one could have implications with the gambling money that the NFL is beginning to take and things like that. It's not going to lead to him getting the boot. I don't think even $100,000 per loss, unless we have more details come to light, it's not going to be enough to get him the boot because the bar is just so high to kick out an owner. There's only been two in the history, or three. Jerry Richardson kind of quietly sold his team with all the Me Too stuff, but Jerry Richardson and Donald Sterling, and then that woman who used to own the, I think the Cincinnati Reds in the late 50s or 60s, who was literally a Nazi. So you have to be literally a Nazi, Donald Sterling, or Jerry Richardson. That's the bar that we're talking about, and I don't think Stephen Ross is going to meet that bar. Well, I would say as much of we've kind of went back and forth with it. I think we both found common ground on the basis of a lawsuit taking place because the bare minimum with a lawsuit is it is going to bring some stuff to light. We're going to see email exchanges. We're going to see private text exchanges to figure out true hiring practices, to figure out true behind the scenes stuff that's happening. And you might get owners on the stand also having to testify under oath. Having to testify under oath. So we're going to figure out some stuff and we're going to actually separate the wheat from the chaff here and what is actually racism, what is incompetence, what is, I don't know, Stephen Ross being a poor owner, the Dolphins sucking and the Lions also sucking worse. You know, we'll figure out that kind of stuff with this lawsuit because it's going to go in depth more than we could ever really go in depth. Although I I do kind of like wonder, do we ever really know what's in someone's psyche? I think that in this case, it's not important to the context of what we're talking about because this is not necessarily covert racism. This is structural and institutional racism that we're talking about. This is white power being in a place with not just 95% of the owners of professional football teams being white. 101 year history of the NFL, there've only been two non-white owners. And the only female owners in the NFL are the widows and spouses of men who had originally purchased the teams. And so only in the last eight years do you have Shad Khan purchasing the Jaguars, but even he himself has a lot of the white billionaire mindset behind him. 
Hogan and the way that he runs his team and the Pagulias in Buffalo who have donated millions of dollars to the Trump campaign. So you kind of have this back and forth between white billionaires and ultimately hiring white men as general managers and presidents of teams. I believe it's over 90% now, even though that's improved because we now have, I believe, five non-white general managers, which is an improvement over what it was 10 years ago. Um, And then, of course, we only have two non-white male head coaches. And so that's just white power as a structure that exists in pretty much every major corporation in America. It's just the NFL is an important microcosm for this because the NFL, it's very public and out in front because we can see who the leaders are of NFL teams. We know, even if we don't know all the general managers, we relatively know a good portion of the general managers. We can name most of the coaches and we can name a good portion of the owners. This exists all throughout corporate America. And so this is just a microcosm for helping us better understand how structural racism ends up being perpetuated across generations when white straight men hire a lot of white straight men in positions of power. But if it's not intentional, is there ever really a way to make a rule to help aid? I know the Rooney rule is certainly a well-intentioned rule, and I know it does give the opportunity for people to interview, but one of the big arguments coming up in this Brian Flores issue is that his interview was ultimately a sham. And I think in certain ways, the Rooney rule does kind of lead to that because I mentioned this metaphor. If I walk into a restaurant, I already know what I'm going to get. Then reading off the specials doesn't really do anything to persuade me one way or the other. If I want the lasagna, I don't care how good the rigatoni is. It's like, you know, I was all in on Harbaugh. If I owned an NFL team, Harbaugh might be my first and only interview. And I would probably be felt comfortable in hiring Jim Harbaugh as my number one. Do I really need to interview more people, waste their time, waste my time? Because I know Harbaugh's my guy. With Jim Harbaugh, I think no, because he has the track record specifically. In Jim Harbaugh's case, I think that's exactly true, is that I think everyone was saying when Brian Flores got fired and there were connections to Jim Harbaugh. And by the way, well, Jim Harbaugh was headed to Miami. Like it's very clear he, until all of this broke, Jim Harbaugh was going to head to Miami. This was a well-orchestrated plot to get him to the Dolphins. And Jim Harbaugh is a guy that you would say, yes, you would, you know exactly who you're going to hire because Jim Harbaugh is in high demand. Where this gets wishy-washy is Nick Sirianni, Kevin O'Connell, who's going to be the coach of the Minnesota Vikings after the Super Bowl, Matt Eberflus. Uh, There's been now multiple Frank Reich guys being hired in that situation. Uh, Nathaniel Hackett with the Broncos. Those are guys that were not highly desirable head coaches. Those are just coaches that ended up getting hired because that's who they ended up deciding was most qualified for the job. And I know this is audio medium. I put most qualified in air quotes because this is a whole conversation about whether this is actually a meritocracy or not, as Eric Bieniemy is not going to get another head coaching job for four cycles. And Byron Leftwich might not get a coaching job now. I mean, I don't know what's real and what's not there with Byron Leftwich, but it looked like he had the Jaguars job. And then he ended up saying that it was either bulky or him which is a weird thing there, but it also could be a smear it. campaign there. <laughs> I yeah. get it. Harbaugh and Balky have definitely butted heads in the past. And it's what well, it came down to a Balky versus Harbaugh discussion when it was for the Niners, who was going to continue on there. So Leftwich put his foot in the ground over Balky. I could understand it. But I don't know what's true and what's not there because again, the Dolphins fired Brian Flores. They were getting crushed for the decision and they released a smear campaign of Brian Flores calling him angry black guy, which has all kinds of racial connotations behind it. So, I don't know what's real and what's not in that situation. Did they call him angry black guy? All the reports that were coming out. I think it's important to be like fair here. Like, did they actually call him angry black guy? 
I mean, not in their press release, but in the stories that were clearly being leaked from Dolphins camp, they were talking about how Brian Flores was difficult to work with, didn't get along with his coordinators, ended up being hostile to people, uh, yelled at people. And th- but these can are he all be hostile and it not be related to his race. Uh, the lawsuit is arguing that this case, they are using phrases that are specifically mentioned towards black coaches, but you don't hear the same things as often around white coaches. And this is about how people have stereotypes typed black coaches for years that the idea of black coaches being players coaches and overwhelmingly being on the defense while white coaches usually on the offensive side of the ball are regarded as offensive geniuses or intellectuals and and all of this that's code words for a lot of the racial undertones that come from structural racism and so I mean we say code words here but at the same time you could laugh at the fact that the Bengals hired Zach Taylor and you could laugh at the fact that all these Sean McVay coaches got hired but you look at the final four in the NFC, it was Matt LaFleur, Kyle Shanahan, and Sean McVay. There's some basis to hire these guys. Like Mike McDaniels, I saw an article from Deadspin questioning, oh, look, another straight white guy gets hired by the Dolphins. Well, Mike McDaniels, first off, is biracial, but secondly, working under Kyle Shanahan for a multitude of years, if he coaches like LaFleur, if he coaches like McVay, then you're justified in that. I think you're only non-justified if you're wrong, which unfortunately, we won't know if you're wrong until these guys actually coach. So this is a whole nother conversation about how these people get their jobs in the first place, because the NFL is not open to everyone the same way. All of these sports leagues are not open to everyone. If you want to be a coach or you want to be a manager because you can't get the entry level positions, there's only so many of them. And because they're in such high demand, they often go to people who have connections already in the industry, whether it's Sean McVay, whose dad used to be a coach, Nathaniel Hackett, whose dad used to be a coach, Kyle Shanahan, obviously, we know that situation there. Or Arthur Smith, for example. These are just ones I can list off the top of my head. But Arthur Smith, his dad is literally the owner of FedEx and part owner of the Washington football team, who his first job was working as an offensive analyst for Ole Miss, which is the school that his dad gives a lot of money to and has a bunch of buildings named after. So this is all a conversation about when white power has the power within the NFL, they also allow people to come into the sport. And this is a whole nother conversation about nepotism that has nothing to do with Brian Flores. The same thing is now actually happening in the NBA where black nepotism is now becoming a thing because the NBA was ahead of the NFL slightly on this. The NBA now has a generation of Steven Silas's and Bickerstaff's who are sons of former coaches as well. And this is a whole conversation about who gets in the door in the first place is that when white people are in positions of power, they often let white people, sometimes their sons, sometimes their nephews, sometimes sort of connection to these people often get in the door in the first place because it's a closed off industry. And the part with successful white coaches is that if you hire a successful white coach, good for you. You hired the right candidate. The thing is, there's a whole pool of people who are not going to be allowed to even have a chance to pursue their career because they didn't get the entry level position that Kyle Shanahan got and then could work 15 years to ultimately become a head coach. In football, I believe there have only been about 18 black head coaches in the last 40 years, somewhere like half of them are former NFL players as well. I think there are very few exceptions. And Brian Flores was one of the exceptions of NFL coach who did not play in the NFL. In Major League Baseball, actually, Major League Baseball has never had a single black manager who did not also play Major League Baseball. And there are all kinds of white guys you can name who never played the sport, who end up getting head coaching jobs 
jobs. Kyle Shanahan obviously being one of them, but that's just because we were talking about him earlier and his last name is Shanahan. It's easy to know how he ended up getting his entry-level position in the NFL. And this is just the, the question about a pool of candidates, which is if you hire people who think, act, and talk like you, those people are going to end up rising through the ranks. And eventually it might take like Brian Dayball going to like eight jobs in 13 years, but eventually you'll end up getting a chance as an NFL head coach. But I can also say that I saw Kyle Shanahan coach and I want people to think, act, and talk like him because thinking, acting, and talking like him has gotten me to a Super Bowl, has gotten me to both playoff appearances. Sean McVay obviously takes a lot from Kyle Shanahan. Matt LaFleur obviously takes a lot from Kyle Shanahan. Those guys are very successful. Don't I want people that think like Kyle Shanahan? When I say think, talk, and act like that, what I'm referring to there is straight, white, cisgender, often Christian men. And Kyle Shanahan's been very good at this. He's been one of the good coaches in this where he hires Robert Sala, who ends up becoming the first Muslim head coach in the NFL. Obviously, we've talked about Mike McDaniel, who's going to end up being a head coach, if not this cycle, the next year or the year after that, who's biracial, which you mentioned the Deadspin article, and I wanted to laugh at that because it's a really funny mess up. The problem is Clay Travis made it not funny because when Clay Travis is using it to argue his point, I all of a sudden feel like, oh, I don't want to be laughing at the same thing Clay Travis is laughing at. But it is really funny that Deadspin thought that uh, Mike McDaniel was white and making their argument about, look at this other white coach. It's like that lady in that podcast who went at, I don't remember who the person was, but said he had white privilege, but it was a black dude on radio. Yeah, exactly. But there are examples like this all the time that are funny if they aren't getting co-opted by people on the right. And that is unfortunate why I can't laugh at that article the way it's like, ha ha ha, look at you deadspin because then I sound like Clay Travis. Um, the thing with Shanahan, and Shanahan's one example of this, I know one of the interesting parts of the lawsuit is the Denver Broncos situation because the Denver Broncos had the interview where it's alleged that John Elway was drunk. And I'm saying alleged on this one because the Broncos came out pretty adamant in their denial that, you know, it's not like a blanket statement by the NFL that says, uh, I believe the NFL statement on Flores is like, these are these claims are without merit when the NFL has been talking about how they need to improve the Rooney rule for years, but there, there is merit. But anyways, the point to that is the Broncos story of John Elway showing up drunk to Brian Flores's interview and then hiring Vic Fangio. While he's the guy who you could argue in the last 10 years is one of like three teams that has actually genuinely employed a non-white coach in not one of these sham jobs, like Steve Wilkes being paid to lose for the Cardinals for one year or Cully being paid to lose one year for the Texans or Hugh Jackson, who might be the ally that Brian Flores is looking for on this lawsuit. The point to that is he's the one who hired Vance Joseph. And like that team was a legitimately great defense. Yes, their offense was struggling, but the problem ended up being Vance Joseph is a shitty coach. That's what ended up being the problem with that one. And then John Elway is also the guy who's benefited from the structural white power system in the in pro football, not just as a player, as a general manager, and now the de facto owner and president of the the Denver Broncos, he's benefited from that system as well and also been the guy who hired George Patton after he stepped away from general manager, then hired Vic Fangio, then hired Nathaniel Hackett. So this is where things kind of go back and forth is that it's important to hire not just people as leadership positions who aren't straight white men, often religiously Christian and also cisgender, but it's also important to hire people who are 
are below those people who will then assume the ranks in the near future, which is the thing that's happened with the general manager pools in the last few years, where you have Brad Holmes becoming the general manager of the Lions. Why? Because he was second in command with the Rams. Chicago Bears hire Ryan Poles. Why? Because he was second in command with the Kansas City Chiefs. Jobs that would traditionally be held by white people are now going to non-white, still men. I mean, there are no women in these positions of power yet, which is another step the NFL should improve on. But at least a step is instead of white men, you're hiring black men. The same thing happened with the Cleveland Browns. Andrew Barry was hired as a black general manager, hired a black uh, assistant general manager, and now he's running the Minnesota Vikings. This is how you start to achieve progress is just white people not hiring other white people and being willing to hire people who don't think, act, look like them and have a similar type of mindset. And that's how you start to create progress without having to kick owners out. Hopefully we're not hiring people just simply because they're minorities. Like how do we draw that line? Uh, when white people stop acting like white people, that's when the line kind of starts to draw there. Cause this is kind of an infinite thing, right? Like we're so far in the stone ages right now that we will probably never get to a point where we can say we have achieved some level of equality because the bar can always be moved. For example, there are no Asian men or Asian women in positions of power in the NFL. We obviously have Kim Ang running things for the Miami Marlins behind Derek Jeter as like a second in command as the first female general manager in baseball. But you don't have any women in positions of power in the NFL. You don't have any Asian men or Latinx. Latinx? Latino. Latino. It goes goes both ways. It depends whether I'm talking to white people or not. You don't have Latino or Latina men and women in positions of power in the NFL. This is the same step up that we have every time we talk about Becky Hammond, which is, look, Becky Hammond is going to be the first female head coach in the NBA. And that's the burden she's been carrying for five years. And then she goes to the WNBA and everyone's like, oh, that's unfortunate. The point that goes to is who's going to be the second female coach? Who's going to be the third? Who's going to be the fourth? Who's going to be the fifth? That's the conversation that moves the needle forward. So I think it's when people are willing to say that the only people qualified for these positions are men. And when only white men are ending up getting these entry-level positions that then end up leading to them rising in industries that a lot of people want to get into. But because sports teams are in such high demand for such few jobs, you can end up filtering out a lot of candidates for people that you want to work with. And that's ultimately just a point of white power because this exists in industries other than football as well. It's just, again, football is easy for us to talk about because we understand the language a little bit better. But isn't the end game to win? Isn't the end game to generate revenue and wins generally generate revenue? So if I'm Mm -hmm. hiring someone and I'm hiring them exclusively based off their race and limiting it to a pool of just white people, regardless of qualification, Am I not by virtue doing my own organization a disservice? Yes, that's the funny part about all of this is that racism makes organizations actively worse. That's the funny part about all of this, because in the end, the thing that is most important for ownership groups and people in positions of power is control. The thing that is most important for people in positions of power more than anything else. And we talk about this in the football context a lot where we're like, is the job of a general manager to win a championship or is the job of the general manager to keep their job? This is a conversation we have all the time about what is your first priority. And so this is something that you can ask the same of people with even higher positions of power, specifically billionaires who run football teams, is the first objective is to maintain power and maintain order. That's the thing that's most important for anyone in a position of power. Should it be that way? Ideally, no. 
But it's totally understandable. If you have power, you don't want to give up that power because having power is awesome. I'm not sure if in the same situation, I wouldn't make the same decisions. So that's the part that's ironic about this is that if you hire more diverse people and those diverse people are opening up to a larger pool of candidates and you're doing your due diligence in the hiring process, you're going to get more qualified candidates. And this is the thing that is fascinating about all of this is that racism and discrimination does active harm to organizations. It makes them less efficient, but people in yeah. power are concerned with maintaining that level of power in the first place. It kind of reminds me of, remember when in the mid 2000s, there was that cake shop that wouldn't sell to gay couples? That's kind of poor capitalism, right? If you're limiting the amount of people that you can sell to, then that's just bad capitalism, which in virtue hurts your business, actively hurts your business. That's essentially what would happen here. So being racist really doesn't serve to benefit anyone. It doesn't serve to benefit the owner. It doesn't serve to benefit the players, the coaches, or the candidates that are in fact getting hired. You could have a one and done Ben McAdoo type season, or I don't know, who's another kind of nothing coach that got hired? Adam Gase is the Pat, perfect example people talk Adam about. Adam Gase, Pat Shermer, someone like that. Yeah, but Adam Gase is the one people point to of, he did the exact same thing Brian Flores did, and he got a second job without having to wait a year with the Miami Dolphins and then with the New York Jets. Now it turned out Adam Gase was a bad coach, but but the point still is there. At least Adam Gase got a second chance. And as I've talked about a couple times on Take It Easy, like in the last 40 years of the NFL, the only non-white head coaches, and we can name all the coaches who got two chances. John Fox got like three chances as a head coach. The ones yeah. who have gotten a second chance are Dennis Green, who again, Dennis Green had to have massive success as a head coach with the Vikings in order to get a second job with the Cardinals. Tony Dungy, Hall of Fame coach. So Tony Dungy got a second chance because he was a Hall of Fame good coach. And Mike Tomlin, Hall of Fame coach, and Ron Rivera, who when Ron Rivera took the job with the Panthers, they had the number one pick that year. They went two and 14 the year before Ron Rivera got there. He only gets a second job because he got Cam Newton with the first draft pick he had in his draft class. But here's where it gets sticky. And this is why I'm kind of surprised at the timing of the lawsuit more than anything. I thought Brian Flores was going to get a second job. Brian Flores still might get a second job. The Texans said Brian Flores was a finalist for one of his, one of their head coaching positions. Doesn't it hurt him if he takes the position though? I know that it's sticky territory. Anytime you have an active lawsuit, it's similar to what was going on with Antonio Brown, where his lawyer probably told him he shouldn't sign with another team after the Bucks released him because his whole argument was, well, I have a messed up ankle. Wouldn't it be similar for Brian Flores to take a job or actively coming after the hiring processes of NFL teams. I'm just trying to think like a lawyer here. Yeah. From the lawyer, there are two points to this. There's the side of the ownership of the NFL and the lawyers filing for Brian Flores. From the lawyer standpoint, it doesn't really matter if Brian Flores gets another job as a coordinator, as a head coach coming up here soon. He won't because of the active lawsuit, but he's still going to be included in this mix. And the reason he won't is because NFL owners don't like it when you give them negative publicity in the middle of their Super Bowl week. They want to be vindictive because they have $70 billion in infinite resources. They're going to essentially blackball, or we're anticipating they're going to essentially blackball Brian Flores the way they blackballed Colin Kaepernick from the sport. Maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't. I think that there are teams that are in really interesting positions to hire Brian Flores, because if I were in a position of an owner, someone 
someone who doesn't think, act, or talk like a normal white man, uh, I would look at it and say the fact that that person had the courage to stand up and push against the push against the white power structure is incredibly courageous, and that's a person I would want leading my team. Maybe not as an X's nose coach, but make him a defensive coordinator for the time being. If you're the Steelers, I would hire Brian Flores now. They're in a really interesting position with the only white billionaire who doesn't act like a white billionaire in their ownership position with the Rooney family. It would be really interesting to see what they did there as allies to progress, shall we say, to the best they can be in the the best allies you can find in the room. So that part is the owners might make an ultimatum that Brian Flores is not allowed back in the NFL, the same way they're going to make an ultimatum to John Gruden, that John Gruden's not allowed back in the NFL. The, the part with the lawyer that it doesn't mess with the situation also is this is a class action lawsuit. This is not Brian Flores specifically suing the NFL. This is on behalf of the class, which they're going to establish as black head coaching candidates, black general manager candidates in the NFL. They're suing on behalf of the class. And so they have 40, 50 years of data they can pull from, if not this one specific example of Brian Flores. They're hoping that other people's stories will come to light that will also shed information on how the NFL is discriminated against them. So if Flores gets a job, he still has the case from his time in Miami. He still has the sham interview from the New York Giants. Obviously, Hugh Jackson tweeted yesterday that the offer from the Browns was pretty good. Um, So maybe he'll have some stories there. Marvin Lewis talked about how he had a sham interview. So they have more evidence that they can present in the lawsuit anyways, even if Flores gets a job. Can I just say this? And I respect Hugh Jackson. Obviously, he did me a favor by coming on this podcast. If he really was getting paid for losses, dude must have been cleaning house. 31 losses there. I mean, talk about taking money to the bank. Yeah, everyone was also joking that Stephen Ross came in cheap with having 100000 a loss when David Culley just got paid $22 million for one season. He got paid more than Bill yeah. Belichick for one season as head coach. They're saying that they came in a little cheap on having him get that job. So yeah, the internet was making those jokes there. Hugh Jackson also is the perfect yeah. candidate for this because he's not going to coach in the NFL ever again. There is a case to be made for firing Brian Flores. And I was going through recent coaching hiring and how many coaches don't make the playoffs in their first three years and make it to a fourth year. The only example I found was John Gruden. But when it comes to John Gruden, I can just quickly say Mark Davis loved John Gruden. Mark Davis thought John Gruden was the greatest head coach he had seen in his lifetime and gave him a 10-year deal that it's kind of hard to back out of when you're entering the fourth season of it. The Raiders may have just been granted a gift from God and the email exchanges of eventually bailing on Gruden. So there is a good case to fire Brian Flores. I wouldn't have done it personally. Going back on the podcast when we first talked about Brian Flores getting fired, I was as shocked as anyone because it didn't seem like it was trending that way. It seemed as though they were going to give him one more year. Maybe the Dolphins might make the playoffs like a wild card team. They seemed to rally at the end. Didn't know if it was good enough. We talked about it at points even midseason when they were one and seven after they just lost to the Jaguars. Was he on the hot seat? And in the long run, it came to fruition. And the long run, that one and seven start probably factored into what came back to bite him in the ass. The Flores thing when we talked about originally is that, yeah, like all coaches in the NFL, if you're not one of the seven or eight really good ones, you're pretty interchangeable at that point. The Brian Flores point is he he could not have done better with what he had. Brian Flores was hired to lose games and get fired after two seasons because the Dolphins were headed for a tank. We now know that. We didn't realize it at the time when the Dolphins in his first game lost 59 to 10 to the Baltimore Ravens. But this is all playing the results on that one because Brian Flores is the same coach if Matthew Wright misses the 40-yard field goal for the Jaguars and the, the Dolphins win that game
game, get the seven seed in the playoffs and get pummeled by the Kansas City Chiefs the way that the Steelers did. He's the same coach. He just has one playoff appearance. And, you know, that would be the argument people say for keeping Brian Flores is, well, he made the playoffs. How could you fire him? Jim Caldwell made the playoffs and he got fired too. It's like it it, it happens. Mike Munchak went to the second round of the playoffs and still got fired. It doesn't make him any different of a coach than he was before that. What might have changed things is if Tua ended up being Joe Burrow, because obviously Zach Taylor, he was looking like he was going to get fired this year, but then <laughs> I fired Joe him Burrow after last year. ended up elevating that team to a Super Bowl. So now it's yeah, like Zach Taylor just has some equity. Sometimes you just luck into these things. The second point I wanted to talk about was the idea of tanking, because obviously we're talking about Hugh Jackson getting paid to tank. We're talking about Brian Flores getting paid to tank. I can't prove this, and it's probably not going to ever come to light, but you look at those Philadelphia 76ers teams, was there a chance that Brett Brown was getting paid to tank a little bit? From what we can tell, I've read the, the book by Yaron Weitzman on the tanking to the top with the 76ers. It seemed like Brett Brown was always against the tanking notion, but the way that the Sixers compensated for this, and it's kind of what the Browns did too, it's why no one ever pointed the finger at the Browns, was they basically built a G League team and put them out on the floor for three seasons. Like they built a team so bad that they couldn't actually win games in the in the NBA, which is a sport that's less random than the NFL and way less random than baseball. Like baseball, the worst teams still win one out of every three games. It was set up in a way that the tanking, tanking is always a prerogative from uh, management and ownership. Players don't tank because players can't afford to tank. Coaches can't tank because coaches can't afford to tank. Management and ownership would like them to tank, but their interests don't align in that, is that coaches have an incentive to win because they got to look out for themselves. And often uh-huh. when you have yeah. tanking teams, those coaches weren't going to get any other jobs anywhere else. David Cully was a 65-year-old wide receivers coach for the Ravens. I said and- this with Adam Gase. I said this with Adam Gase when everyone was hammering him. Oh, how can you win with the Jets late in the season? Adam Gase knows he's not going to be here next year. He doesn't care about drafting Trevor Lawrence. His mm-hmm. first duty is to win with this crappy Jets team. And they won at the end and it ruined the Jets draft chances to get Trevor. It's the same thing as Matt Nagy this year. I was like, Matt Nagy, if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down four yards rushing at a time because that's how Matt Nagy is trying to get another job somewhere as a soon to be quality control coach slash quarterbacks coach for the Alabama Crimson Tide. That's how Matt Nagy is going to try and get his next job. You don't think his boy Andy is going to hire him back? Nah, Andy doesn't need to. No one will hire his offensive coordinator and no one will hire his quarterbacks coach. It doesn't matter. Andy doesn't need to lose his, it doesn't need to lose his coordinators because no one's going to hire Eric Bieniemy. So Andy's good with that. The point to that is, I figured this out when I was looking through it, is that other than Vance Joseph and Anthony Lynn, the only other five black head coaches that have been hired in the last 10 years were on five of the worst NFL teams that have ever been looking for a head coach. It was last year's Texans, the Cardinals that had the number one pick with Josh Rosen, which by the way, the Cardinals just totally did Josh Rosen a disservice by putting him behind that terrible team. That was just prerogative from ownership to draft a quarterback. Then you have Hugh Jackson with the Cleveland Browns, obviously. Brian Flores with the Dolphins, who we now know were actively trying to tank during that season that they got the number five pick. And we're also trying to get Tom Brady. That was the other part of that lawsuit that was interesting. And Raheem Morris in Tampa is the other one. I should temper this down now. No, they were actively tanking only for this purpose. It is still ongoing lawsuit. So we still have to see what actual evidence gets provided. And we'll get that. We'll see whether <laughs> yes. it's true or not. So oh, I think I think you are time, correct I think there. Would be more but appropriate. the point I would go to with allegedly tanking 
tanking is they traded Minka Fitzpatrick after the 59 to 10 loss. We knew at the time they were doing a teardown. It was just that the prerogative from ownership is where things go a step too far, especially when you consider Stephen Ross also is a major investor in the Action Network, which has its own sports book. And so this is where things end up getting complicated with this is Stephen Ross and gambling connections and the integrity of the sport is something that's way more damaging to the NFL. I mean, for better or for worse, I don't think it should be this way because people have their morals in the wrong place, but the integrity of the sport and the results that are being watched is going to create more of a stir fire for the NFL than even the NFL is racist in their hiring practices. Let Pete Rose into the Hall of Fame. Do it, baseball. Yeah, but that one's just because of Bud Selig. That's just because Bud Selig is going to die on I'm not letting Pete Rose in the Hall of Fame. He's just got a vendetta against the dude. That one, <laughs> that one's not again. Also, let Shoeless Joe Jackson in the Hall of Fame, too. That, too. Well, we're talking about hiring, firing decisions in the NFL. We should talk about another couple hiring decisions that happened over the week. Josh McDaniels, he took the Raiders job. That surprised the hell out of me. Obviously, I was mm-hmm. all aboard the Harbaugh to Las Vegas train. And out of left field Sunday morning, right before the championship game, so Mark Davis and company knew what they were doing. Josh McDaniels is our new head coach. What is the most shocking thing about it is I thought he was just waiting for the New England job. It seemed like a shoeing. That was what he was doing, right? That's why I backed out last minute out of Indianapolis. I was taking this New England job when Bill retired. What changed? That's the thing. And I will probably not figure that out because it seems like Bill Belichick is signing on for another year. So I, it doesn't sound like he's retiring this year. It doesn't sound like he's retiring next year. What changed in McDaniel's mind? Who is that next heir apparent now? So I think Josh McDaniels was ready for that job. And this is the part that's going to be complicated about this, because I know we talk all the time about who's the heir apparent to Belichick. We all just assumed after McDaniels turned down what was the best coaching job of the last five years to come available. Like at that time, they still had Andrew Luck. They had the pick that was going to become Quentin Nelson. They had the pick that was going to become Darius Leonard. Like that was the coaching job to have at the time. And he turned that down after already accepting it. We assumed that he was waiting for the job in New England. The part that I find fascinating with that is we never had any concrete evidence that suggested it. And we don't know that Bill Belichick is going to be allowed to pick his successor. In fact, I would argue Bill Belichick might not be allowed to pick his successor. He just might up and leave one day and Bob Kraft is going to go through the hiring process of bringing in the new general manager and the new head coach. But we all assumed that McDaniels was the heir, but that was never something that had like concrete reporting behind it. Not even in the Seth Wickersham book when they talked about uh, McDaniels backing out in, I think it was like hour 18 of the book or whatever it was that I read. (laughs) They didn't even say like Belichick promised him he would be the heir apparent. It was just McDaniels got cold feet and McDaniels backed out of the deal. That was all they could basically say was he was scared to leave at that time. And so he he backed out of the job. And that was all the, that was done behind that. I think this is fascinating because if you look at the trajectories of the last 60 years of the Raiders and the Patriots, the Patriots in the 1960s, when they're founded until 1983, never won a playoff game, not one playoff game. When the Raiders were winning three championships and it's the franchise of Tom Flores and John Madden and you know the Raider logo Raiders one of the best 
programs in all of professional sports and the Patriots are a laughing stock where this is a fun story I learned. The when the Patriots won their first playoff game against the Bengals in 1983, someone stole the goalpost out of the stadium, carried it out to the parking lot and got electrocuted because the goalpost hit a power line over the stadium. This is a real thing that apparently happened in the 1980s when the Patriots won their first playoff game in 20 years of existence and then only as the shift goes to the 2000s and the tuck rule kind of changes this where the Raiders make the Super Bowl in 2002 should have won the Super Bowl in 2001 if not for the tuck rule 20 years Raiders zero playoff appearances for uh, 14 years two wild card appearances zero division titles in 20 years Patriots greatest dynasty we've ever seen like the Raiders and Patriots kind of flip-flopped each other right around the time of the tuck rule 20 years ago last month and McDaniels took the Raiders job over potentially the Patriots job. And I found that super fascinating because if you wanted to sit here and argue that the Raiders job is better than the Patriots job, I'd be willing to hear you out. I wouldn't agree with it on principle, but it's not insane to say the Raiders job is better right now than the Patriots job. It's warmer. I'll I'll take that. I'll take that. I'll take it's warmer. For me, anything below 60, I hate it. I hate it. So I'd probably take Las Vegas over New England just on that principle alone. But looking at the actual job itself, the Raiders, obviously, they were a playoff team last year. Whether you agree with how they got there or not, by hook or by crook, they were a playoff team. So McDaniels is inheriting a playoff team. Can he keep it a playoff team? Is McDaniels good enough to ensure that whatever success they had last year, they can build off that? That is where I'm a little concerned with this hiring. Because I don't know if Josh McDaniels is a good head coach or not. Good for him. He got his second chance here. I remember the Broncos. I remember how he advocated for Tim Tebow to be a first-round draft pick. Those are things that follow Josh McDaniels to this day. Is he going to be a more agreeable, likable person now that he's with the Raiders than he was when he was in Denver? Or even when he was as an offensive coordinator for the Patriots? Because those are all factors into how successful is he going to be on the second go-round? Is he going to butt heads with Mark Davis? Is Mark Davis going to let him do his thing. Mark Davis, if he had it his way, probably wouldn't even have Josh McDaniels out there. Mark Davis, if he had it his way, he'd have John Gruden again for another five to 10 years. And I, I saw a theory that the reason he announced Josh McDaniels before the championship games was a big fuck you to the NFL for having to have him go through this whole hiring process after the John Gruden dilemma, because it's a Washington football team investigation. And my guy's like only guy that has to go down for it. <laughs> yeah, no, one, one of my favorite jokes that I've seen on the internet in the past year is that after the Duran Payne fight on the sidelines of the Washington game where they lost by 40 was that the NFL was going to announce punishment by leaking more John Gruden emails. That was one of my favorite jokes of the last month in the NFL. Yeah, so I think that there's a better chance than not that McDaniels is not going to be that special coach because how many special coaches have been hired in the past five years? It's like McVay and the other ones are Andy Reid, Belichick, Check Tomlin, like yeah. Sean Payton. Right now, the only ones that are succeeding are people from this Shanahan, LaFleur, McVeigh branch of tree. Or, or ones Reed. that have a franchise quarterback. Yeah. Belichick disciples have not fit that mold over the last 20 years. There's been a lot of bad Belichick disciples. Probably the most successful was Bill O. Brian Flores, we'll still see on that one. McDaniels and his first tenure, bust. Uh, Charlie Wise, when he went to Notre Dame, bust. Uh, Romeo Cornell, Romeo Eric Cornell, Mangini, Eric Mangini, Patricia, Patricia. 
bust, bust, bust. Being around greatness doesn't necessarily make you great. And the problem with a lot of these Belichick guys is they go into their new jobs trying to act like Belichick. But I don't think that style of coaching really works without the resume that Belichick has accrued. Well, they talked about this in the book with Eric Mangini is that Eric Mangini got to the Jets and they were like, bro, you're just trying to be Belichick. And there's not a respect there. Joe Judge tried to do the Belichick thing, right? Joe Judge was the no nonsense coach. And everyone was just like, why do we have to listen to you? And it fell apart. What have you done? Who are you? Who are you, 30-something-year-old guy that's trying to act like an 80-something curmudgeon? Yeah, trying to be Belichick without... Eric Mangini talked about this in the book where he's like, after he got fired by the Jets and he was going to take the Browns job, he kind of sat down and was like, I am not Bill Belichick. And that was the thing that he had to confront is like, I just tried to do everything Belichick did and I am not Bill Belichick. And this is something that some people fall into the loops of, mostly because people tell them all the time, hey, we want you to bring the Patriot way to this team. We want to be the next Patriots, even though your quarterback is Jared Goff. We want you to be the next Patriots. And so this is the thing that kind of goes over and over is that you're not hiring them for their leadership. You're hiring them to hope that they can bring what Belichick had, but we're seeing it now. Like if not for Tom Brady, yes, the Patriots win a championship, but that's because Bill Belichick got that big brain. Bill, Bill Belichick's got big brain and defense, and he can look at things that other people can't. That's his great advantage. Anyone that could talk about the position of long snapper for 10 plus minutes has that big brain, has that big brain energy. Mm-hmm. That's what Bill Belichick And even still, going. that only gets Bill Belichick so far without talented players. Over the last three years, their offenses have been pitiful, absolutely pitiful, and yet they've made two playoff appearances in three years. So the, the Patriots have dramatically overachieved to the rosters that they've had. That's what I assume is Bill Belichick and maybe to a certain extent Josh McDaniels. I assume that's where the great advantage lies in Belichick is that he took average players to above average players and made them champions along with one really great player in Tom Brady and really great player in Gronk. And, you know, he found a bunch of other people in the meantime. And now he has players that are average by NFL standards and he makes them above average. And I feel like that's the great advantage of Belichick and maybe McDaniels. You know, here's where McDaniels has a chance to succeed with the Raiders. He can make Derek Carr his Tom Brady. He can make Hunter Renfro his Julian Edelman. And he can make Darren Waller his Rob Gronkowski. Yeah, sure. Uh, Waller, Waller's the only one that you have a case there for. Derek Carr is as good as 44-year-old Tom Brady. I'll give Derek Carr that. He was as good as 44-year-old Tom Brady. So Hunter to Julian, you don't think that that's a fair one-to-one? They say uh, that would the same ability-wise. That would be disrespectful to Julian Edelman. That would be disrespectful. Again, you mean Hunter not a Renfro. Hall of Famer Julian Edelman? Not a Hall of Famer Julian Edelman, but Hunter Renfro last season had more catches than Stefan Diggs, more yards than... I believe all but like 10 receivers in the NFL and 10 touchdowns like Hunter Renfro was quietly a pro bowl wide receiver last year. It was absolutely ridiculous that that happened. I don't understand it because he looks like a 48 year old with two children who are about the same age as me. Sometimes guys like that just get open in a phone booth is the old saying. Yes. I don't know. I will be down on it until I see it. This may be one similar to how you were pretty stubborn on the Cincinnati Bengals. I might be stubborn on seeing Josh McDaniels with the Raiders next year until they actually start producing wins because I'm just going to judge him based off his Broncos tenure. I'm going to judge him off the basis of other Belichick disciples. So unless they have seven, eight wins going into November, I'm not going to look at this team and think, 
think, ah, oh, man, they really turned the corner, especially too, because he just needs to not get worse, right? That's the thing. You had a 10 win team last year in the NFL. Just don't make it worse. Even if they well, don't make a monumental jump, just don't be worse than a 10. We, we know they were a 10 win team, but on paper, I mean, again, there's a whole off season to go, but on paper, the Raiders are like a seven win team. So I say, if you can win more than seven games next year, you're doing something right. I think they said, if you flip the one possession games thing, like they said, like if you flip all the one possession games, I think the Raiders would have finished like five and 12 or something last year. So you know, the Raiders were remarkably lucky. We know that. That's why they were in the playoffs in the first place. I don't think, I think they're like the 10th best team on paper in the AFC. Uh, but the more interesting conversation is why McDaniels took this job over waiting it out with the Patriots. Then will McDaniels turn the Raiders into a winner? Because I'm pretty sure he won't turn the Raiders into a winner. Schematically. So he's going to try and bring the Patriots scheme over to Las Vegas. That quick get the ball in my hands passing attack with Derek Carr may be able to mask some of their offensive line issues and I think that that's probably the biggest offseason need for the Raiders is to fix that offensive line um defensively they could obviously fix their secondary that's always been a thing for the Raiders but they did make huge improvements on the secondary over the course of this past year uh we'll see what they do defensive coordinator wise uh, obviously I don't think Gus Bradley is going to be along for the ride so who are they going to bring along to be that next defensive coordinator because if Josh McDaniels is your play caller that's at least good because you don't have to worry about that when it comes to hiring an offensive coordinator. Um, but figuring out who's going to run the defense has been obviously a big problem for the Raiders in their infutility over the last two decades. Whoever that guy is, I think is just as important as Josh McDaniels getting hired. Let's talk about the other big coaching news. Jim Harbaugh, who I thought was going to take this Raiders job, decided to stay at Michigan. You said that you think it's a good decision. And I could understand that there are certain elements that do make it a good decision. But I still believe that Harbaugh is going to be back in the NFL eventually. I don't know with which team. I don't know when. I thought it could have been this coaching cycle. But as you mentioned, between the Dolphins job having its issues, the Raiders deciding to pivot to McDaniels, and whatever happened in that final meeting with Minnesota, he didn't feel like it was the right time to make that leap. I don't know what that right job is going to be. Who knows? Maybe it's going to be with the 49ers again in 10 years. But eventually, J Jim Harbaugh will be back in the NFL. Yes, I think that's probably true. I think he was aligning for the Dolphins job. I think Jim Harbaugh was going to go down and interview for the Dolphins job because the report I saw said that the Vikings didn't offer him a job after they left the interview. And then he pulled his name out of consideration because I think the Vikings were always going to hire Kevin O'Connor. Connell because the report came out that the Vikings are going to hire Kevin O'Connell after the Super Bowl with the Rams. So I think the Vikings were always going to hire Kevin O'Connell, even when they did the interview with Harbaugh, which suggests that either Harbaugh was doing it to get his name out there or that he was interested in one of the other head coaching jobs that's still available. And I think Miami's the one connection we can make to that. But after this lawsuit, no way is Jim Harbaugh going to be the guy, the face of white power going to the organization that fired Brian Flores and is under active investigation for Jim Harbaugh wasn't going to do that. So I think Jim Harbaugh does want to go back to the NFL. And I don't know Jim Harbaugh personally. 
So I don't know what the best decision is for Jim Harbaugh, but we talked about this when we had the Raiders conversation with him is that's a really cushy gig to walk away from, to walk away from, you can coach as long as you want. He's, he's obviously in his late fifties right now. So you can coach as long as you want, retire in Michigan and basically get to be like an administrator running a $150 million or having influence. He's not, you know, the decision maker, but having influence in running a $150 million dollar athletic program in retirement like that's a pretty good job to have or pretty cushy job to have so Michigan's one of these rare programs that doesn't have that same level of expectation and if I were in his position I would at the stage of life I was at I'd be content riding it out with Michigan unless he doesn't enjoy doing the job at Michigan anymore or never really did I I would probably just stay there and ride it out as long as I could because that's a really great job to have but at least for this year he'll be back. I agree with you. I think he is still angling to get back to the NFL. I think he's just waiting for that right job and looking at the open positions there that people were throwing out. Uh, Minnesota, I guess, signing up for Kirk Cousins for the next year and whatever quarterback mystery they have coming in the future. That wouldn't have been a great job when it comes to the Raiders. Uh, We could go back and forth. Are the Raiders a good job or a bad job? I thought it was going to be a good enough job, but maybe he disagrees. Maybe he told Mark that it just doesn't seem like a right fit. And there still is questions on Derek Carr even being the quarterback. So not having that quarterback locked in while you're seeing Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes duel it out in the divisional round. And then you could say Jacksonville, but then he'd have to go back with Bulky and he know he was going to say like, fuck that. Because he would at least have Trevor Lawrence, but you know, yeah, the Texans, the Texans aren't going to hire Jim Harbaugh. I think they released their final candidates. I think it was O'Connell, who's now going to be the Vikings head coach. We already know that. Which, by the way, I thought the Vikings might have been the second best job. I know it might not look that way next year because they're probably going to tear down that roster a little bit, especially getting rid of Kirk Cousins after next year. So they're kind of stuck in the rut a little bit there. And then it was Josh McCown, I think, and then it was Brian Flores, which was interesting that Brian Flores was still included there. So it suggests that maybe Josh McCown is going to be the Texans head coach possibly. Yeah, I I think Harbaugh is going to wait for that perfect job to open up. And we talked about this when the cycle first started. All these jobs aren't really great this offseason. Like the Raiders job is probably the best among them, but the Giants job is shit. The Broncos job is shit. The Bears job is shit. The Texans job is shit. Like the Jaguars job is only good because you have the possibility of Trevor Lawrence being special. The Saints job, I forgot about that. The Saints job might be open, might not. It might go to Dennis Allen. The Saints job isn't great because they don't have a quarterback. So, you know, none of the jobs this cycle were super desirable. I think Jim Harbaugh just really wanted to go to Miami. I think that was kind of his jump was he really wanted to get back in the NFL and Miami was the perfect job for him to do it. And once all of this unloaded on Miami, it was less desirable to him and he wanted to stay at Michigan. So I think it's going to probably be two years before Harbaugh jumps ship unless unless the Cardinals fire their coach and really want to hire Jim Harbaugh, which okay, if that's what you want to do. I think Sean Payton's a better option than Jim Harbaugh, but you know, it's whatever you want to do there. Talk about personalities not meshing. I don't see Kyler and Jim Harbaugh having a very symbiotic relationship. I I don't even know if they need to either. Like, I don't know if Sean Payton and Kyler Murray would mesh, but I don't know what Kyler Murray's personality is. So, well, Jim, he's that quarterback. He's that former quarterback. He likes to wear the gloves on the sidelines and he's always somewhat had a close relationship 
relationship to his quarterbacks. I go back to seeing him give Alex Smith the pat downs on the sidelines, uh, always vouching for Colin Kaepernick, even when he was the Michigan coach, or obviously his relationship with Andrew Luck. Jim's always been very close with his quarterback. So I do think that he needs a quarterback that's on the same wavelength as he is. And everything I hear about Kyler is from people that have talked to Kyler. It's kind of an asshole. This is the thing, because obviously I co-host the, or produce and potentially sometimes co-host the Red Rain podcast on SB Nation, which you can check out. And I've never understood this point with the Cardinals because I had heard them say, you know, the Cardinals aren't going to extend Kyler Murray this offseason. I was like, why? Why, why would you do that? And there are explanations like, you know, the end of season collapses have been concerning. I'm like, well, he got hurt and the team got hurt last. Like Max Garcia was trying to block Aaron Donald in the playoffs. I was like, what, what do you mean the end of season collapses? And they're like, he, he doesn't get along well with people sometimes. I'm like, what does that mean? Like, I've, it's, heard, it, I, I've heard me guy versus we guy and football is one of the ultimate we sports. <laughs> yeah. Shout out. We sports. That was my, that was my shit as a kid. <laughs> Um, it just seems confusing to me because of how gifted he is. But then again, I thought Carson Wentz was all that shit. And Carson Wentz ended up being like a tier three level quarterback with injuries. And so I see Kyler Murray and I think that guy's going to be special, but I've heard people push back on it for a while. I'm like, he's not Jared Goff, but he's not Patrick Mahomes. And there's no shame in not being Patrick Mahomes. It's just, I'm confused every time the Kyler Murray slander comes in because I just don't see it. I don't get it when people do the Kyler Murray slander. I've I've tried I've heard people out on it, but I've never gotten a good explanation because all I see is that dude is as good as Joe Burrow while being shorter than him. And he can do more crazy things that he can do all of the Mahomes and Josh Allen things. He's just a smaller quarterback and he's just not as good. And I've never understood the Kyla Murray point there. But if Jim Harbaugh butts heads with him, I feel like that's a failure on both parts because they're both extremely talented at what they do. And if they work together in a symbiotic relationship, I think it's going to work better than even Cliff Kingsbury versus Kyler Murray because I Jim Harbaugh has the track record to suggest even if I'm not the biggest Jim Harbaugh fan like I don't think he's one of these transcendent Hall of Fame coaches I think he's just above average it is better than Cliff Kingsbury who I look at right now is just another dude or you know Zach Taylor or whoever else could get hired as the next coach for Kyler Murray Jim would definitely challenge Kyler and that might be good for Kyler that might be good to take that next step as a quarterback who's consistently winning in the NFL to have that counter voice in his ear. Someone to challenge him, not just say, just go with the flow, which I feel like Cliff might do. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I'm not in that locker room. But it seems like Cliff is kind of that laissez-faire kind of coach, like, hey, just go out there and make plays. Do what you want, man. And I think that that's not necessarily good coaching. And that might be also, too, why their teams collapse towards the end. That's fine and all in the beginning when everyone is energy, pumped for the season. But as you get into the dog days of the season, you need a guy that's actually going to be that coach, that guy who's actually going to uh, make sure that you guys are like adapting and growing as players. And that might, yeah. that might be Cliff's shortcoming because it's also a thing that's affected not only the Cardinals, but if you look back at his Texas Tech tenure, they they also are known for late season collapses. The Cardinals one could be that, but the thing I, I put them in the same camp as the Baltimore Ravens the last two years, which is they just got incredibly broken. Like sometimes we talk about, well, everyone has injuries and teams overcome, you know, Matthew Stafford's got a busted shoulder going into the Super Bowl. Troy Aikman put his business out there on the broadcast. So I know he might be hurt and he doesn't have zip on it when no one knew that Matthew Stafford was hurt. So like everyone has injuries. It's not like what happened to the Cardinals. The Cardinals lost three of 
their five elite players, their starting center, their two starting right guard, or their starting right guard, their two starting left guards, two of their wide receivers, their starting corner retired, and we just haven't heard from Malcolm Butler since then. And they were playing Jordan Hicks at linebacker because their two first round picks couldn't find the field. Like the Cardinals were just apocalyptic hellscape of injuries after starting the year nine and two. So that's what I, I, I essentially write it off and say that's what it is. I could be wrong, but it feels like Baltimore and Arizona are kind of in the same boat for me where I'm like, both of those teams would have won the division if they just stayed healthier. And in a weird year like this, Arizona might have had a deep playoff run if they had just had their entire team healthy. I don't agree, but because we have other stuff to talk about, we're, we're bearing the lead here. We, we didn't talk about this one at all. Tom Brady retired this week. Oh yeah, forgot about that, huh? Yeah, that was kind of like, how did we go this far into this episode and not even mention the biggest headline of the week? Tom Brady retired this week. Yeah. And I know um, we went back and forth on it. It's kind of funny if you listen to last week's podcast. Obviously, we started with the, I'm buying into the drama. I'm buying Buying into it because of the way he was talking on that podcast. And you're like, ah, no, Tom, watch, he's not going to retire. And then the Schefter report came out and then Brady pushed back on it. Brady Sr. pushed back on it. It's like, okay, this is planting that seed of doubt in my head. And you were like, I'm all team Schefter here. And then we get the final Tom Brady social media post that just confirms everything. So over the course of the last week, we're both right and wrong respectively we both bought into the drama at some point and the drama officially came to a conclusion with the greatest of all time quarterback stepping away from the game you had a very detailed video of your thoughts on tom brady and for me obviously being a niners fan you grow up on montana being the greatest quarterback of all time and anyone that questions it is an ignorant slut (laughs) tom brady earned my respect officially i think in the 2016 super bowl i don't think i officially changed from montana being the greatest to brady being the greatest until that 2016 super bowl because 28 to 3 just was the most phenomenal super bowl performance i had ever seen the most remarkable comeback and i was a guy that always reflected on jeff garcia leading a huge comeback against the new york giants in the playoffs so i could appreciate whenever a quarterback leads his team back wills them back to the finish line like tom brady he did then that was my official turning point on Tom Brady it was never official hate because I wanted Tom Brady to complete that perfect season in 2008 I, or 2007 I wanted him to complete that perfect season I was actually really disappointed whenever Eli Manning escaped the pocket and threw the one that went off the guy's helmet the David Tyree catch I was so mad because I'm like just sack him just bring him down the ground you literally have him three guys had him in the backfield and he was still able to get that one off not to mention of course the great catch and even on that it's Asante Samuel just swipe it off the guy's head I was so mad when that uh, season didn't end in perfection because I would have loved to see it we're probably never going to see it again in our lifetime with the expanded playoff the expanded season that was probably our last shot at really seeing a perfect team unless something insane happens someone has a perfect draft literally all seven rounds they just hit home run picks I don't see us having a perfect team that was (laughs) when I started to make my turn on Brady but 2016 I think was what sealed the deal for me that he was the greatest of all time. Well, how many perfect regular seasons have we had over the past 40 years? Is it one? Is it two? I'm not sure if there was, I think the 49ers might've had one. Just the one, a lot of 15 and ones, a lot of 14. Yeah, I know the Panthers were, the Panthers were 14 and 0 the year that um, Cam Newton won the MVP and they lost in the Super Bowl. So I know that was one that coulda, shoulda, woulda also been 16 and 0 instead. But I get your point to that. I know that's your lasting point on Tom Brady. Mine, and I, I talked about this on our Tom Brady eulogy that we did on Saturday because when Schefter reported it, that's 
when I did all, that's when I fired off all the Tom Brady retirement podcast. I did it once and I haven't really talked about it again since, but I am a better human being because of Tom Brady, because I was told as a child that you're supposed to hate Tom Brady. Why? Because Philip Rivers never beat Tom Brady one time his entire life. Philip Rivers, childhood idol growing up in San Diego, not once beat Tom Brady. 2006, Marlon McCree fumble. They were up eight, five minutes to go. Tom Brady threw an interception that was immediately stripped, recovered by the Patriots, and they went down, tied the game, kicked a game-winning field goal. Greatest Chargers team ever, should have won the Super Bowl. Nope, that's it. Tom Brady gets the magic of Marlon McCree. That was one that, oh, by the way, they lost in the conference championship that year. That was one of them that didn't even result in a Super Bowl. For all the great breaks the Patriots had, that one didn't even result in making a Super Bowl. That was one of the five losses. (laughs) Should have, because they came so close. They were leading in that game. Talk about all the great Brady comebacks. They they got came back on that one by the Peyton Manning-led Colts. Yeah, they were up 18 points in that game and they blew it against the Colts and the Colts went on to win the championship. And for all of that, like hate Tom Brady then, hated him when he beat the Falcons, celebrated when he lost to the Titans, celebrated when he lost to the Eagles, heartbroken when he destroyed my boy Patrick Mahomes in 2018 and 2020. After last year, I'm like, I don't do this with anyone else. I don't root for the Lakers the way I used to. I don't root for the Chargers and I don't root for any football team. I root for Mahomes, but I want good things to happen to Mahomes. Uh, I want good things to happen to Giannis, like the greatest of the greats. I want good things to happen to them, but I don't root for this anymore. Why am I rooting for Tom Brady to lose? And so I learned to appreciate Tom Brady's greatness, which Tom Brady doesn't need anyone to appreciate his greatness. Everyone over appreciates Tom Brady's greatness all the time at the cost of everyone else's greatness gets diminished because- How could you not be Tom Brady? I don't know. Have you heard Rob Parker talk about Tom Brady? No, I get that. But Kellerman took a while to make that turn. Yeah, I know. It took me took me until this year to make that turn with Tom Brady, where I just didn't care anymore. I'm like, I should appreciate. And also the Seth Wickersham book helped, like learning the backstory of it. I'm like, oh, Tom Brady's just a dude. Tom Brady's just a dude that happened to be really great at football and worked ridiculously hard to be great at football. Had to quell his personalities, had anxieties, had traumas. And he, he decided at 36 years old in 2013, the way I want to invest all my resources, all my connections, and all my capital is I want to play football until I'm 45 years old. That's what I want to do. He mentioned Alex Guerrero in his exit speech and did not mention the Patriots. Like Alex Guerrero was the one guy who saw his plan and said, Let's do it. Everyone called him crazy. We're going to defy aging in the sport. We're going to play 10 years and win four championships. And Mm -hmm. he did it. And Alex Guerrero was the person who said, let's go get to work. And now Alex Guerrero is his best friend in the whole world. And so this is just a dude who had that faith in, I'm going to defy aging and use science to play until I'm 45 and did it. He will turn 45 in August. He played until he was 45 years old and walked away to start his business ventures and making movies and making making propaganda about the Tom Brady story and all of that stuff. Like he did it. The one thing that was disappointing about the Schefter report is I heard that he was supposed to announce his retirement in the last episode in Man in the Arena. And I'm thinking, oh, that would have been cool. That would have been kind of cool, right? End of the episode, kind of like a Marvel end credit scene. He's like, and I'm retired. That is a great way to launch the Tom Brady brand. Because the reason he did this was Tom Brady wanted to use his retirement, which again, the original post of Tom Brady retires on Bleacher Report was the most fired 
post in the history of Bleacher Report. So this is like everyone's ready for this. Tom Brady wanted to use that to drive subscriptions to his television and movie platform, to his social media, so that he could then use that to launch his platforms later on in his career with his production company and all of that stuff. And well, that would have been he, awesome. When he first tweeted, wasn't it the, one of the most liked or favorited tweets in Twitter history? I did not hear that one, but that would make some sort of sense. The, the You mean the retirement post? No, no. Just when he, his first ever tweet, that when he first created his Twitter account, because he had always been a non-existent person on social media. Yeah, so he'd been Patriot Twitter, Way guy. Yeah, so he'd been making a Twitter way. and tweeting something ridiculous. And by the way, one of the biggest things I would also say that has made me shift my position on Tom Brady, it's finding out how funny he is. Finding out that he's yeah. a funny dude on Twitter. These videos he does with Gronk on Instagram, where he gets his production company to cut together like, it's game day week, guys. We just had a big one against the Falcons. That kind of really made me start to fall in love with him. I'll, I'll be honest too. I even held on to the system quarterback thing for the longest time in my defense of Joe Montana versus Tom Brady. I'm like, well, everyone knows that Brady's just a system quarterback. I mean, Montana went to the Chiefs and still led that team to playoffs. And then he goes to the Bucs and just wins a Super Bowl. The opposite of the system he played in. Yes, he brought over a lot of Patriot elements to their eventual game plans, but that was still a lot of Bruce Arians and the no risk it, no biscuit, deep ball pass. In fact, his last touchdown pass will be a deep shot to Mike Evans over Jalen Ramsey. Yes, Jalen Ramsey fell asleep at the will on that, but the fact is that's his last ever touchdown, a beautiful spiral to Mike Evans. Yeah, of course. And Tom Brady defies all the aging and gets to beat us. And now he'll go make propaganda movies for Tom Brady's brand and people will pay a lot of money for it. Good for Tom Brady, you know? The clothing brand. Yep, and his clothing brand and TV 12 and whatever else Tom Brady's going to do, he was going to use. Do you know how many people would have watched that man in the arena if he'd gotten to use the last episode to announce his retirement, that would have been so smart. That would have been so smart on his part. Well, that's reportedly how Schefter got the news because someone in production obviously knows how the episode ends and leaked that to uh, Schefter and the other guy. I'm missing on the other one. That's reportedly how Oh, Jeff Darlington. Jeff Darlington. Yes, that's reportedly how Brady's retirement officially got out. And obviously Brady has to answer these questions and everything over the days to come. That's interesting. I, gosh, I hadn't heard this before. So I don't know if this is credibly reported or not, but I find that idea super fascinating if that's how they got their information or like we're tipped off that Tom Brady might be retiring because I know Ian Rappaport confirmed it right afterwards. It's kind of why people poke holes in the argument of can Batman have a bat cave because someone has to do repairs in the bat cave. So uh, how is someone not leaking out, hey, Batman is Bruce Wayne. That's kind of the idea of if you're going to have an ESPN production and the lead (laughs) NFL insider works for ESPN, you kind of have to expect that this might happen. It was going to happen no matter what. This happens with everyone. There's just so many people in so many places. Shams reported that Donald Trump had caught COVID. Like there's so many people in so many places that you just, the information is going to get out because there are more news reporters than there is news to report. So if people really want to put their effort and utility behind it, they're going to figure out the information. Doesn't necessarily mean that there's a lot of investigative journalism that's being done, but it's 
it's just reporting news as it happens. It's just getting information out faster to people is the name of the game for Adam Schefter and Ian Rappaport and all them. And yeah, I, I knew the whole time, like Schefter's not putting that out unless he's triple checked, quadruple checked, pentuple checked his sources. Him and Darlington are not putting their name behind that unless they are 100% sure that Tom Brady is retiring. And that's why I texted you, is it possible that Schefter could take a swing and a miss? Because I feel as though he's done that in the past. There was like a free agent thing that he made reported that didn't go through. I can't cite the specific example, but I remember something where maybe he jumped the gun and it made me think, is Tom Brady going to have a season just out of spite? Because out of any athlete that would have a season just out of spite, would it not be pick 199? Would it not be that pale, skinny white dude that we get to see in his underwear every year when we talk about the draft? It would have been him. It would have been Tom Brady, the ultimate chip on my shoulder guy. Michael Jordan did it for like three seasons too, but that's that's another that's conversation. Why those guys, I'm sure. And that's why those guys are what they are, right? I'm sure there's people we're not thinking about. Adrian Peterson's still hanging around. I'm sure he'd like to spite some people. He's just just not good enough to do it at this point. Spite is an underrated motivator. Spite is an underrated motivator. Sometimes you chain smoke spite and it will pay off. Or sometimes you could be spiteful and you look like Aaron Rodgers and everyone just kind of dislikes you. But yeah. Or you could be Trevor Lawrence and say, why do I have to motivate with self-hatred and loathing? Why does that have to be motivation? What if I can self-motivate by because the, the thought of success? Sure. Let's let make myself miserable because it's tried and true effective, except for the people who it doesn't work for because they're not Tom Brady. So you're telling me before each podcast, you don't look in the mirror and just scream at yourself, get together, you piece of shit. Come on. You can not this. No, That's I am not Leonardo DiCaprio. I, I'm not Leonardo DiCaprio in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. No, I am not pointing a gun to my head right before I come on camera. No, that is not how that works. So you do watch movies. I've seen a few. I've seen a few. Again, seen I've seen The Social Dilemma. That's, You've seen uh, the that's more documentary. The pictures? I, you saw the pictures? pictures. What pictures? Uh, what old people called the movies. Oh, I thought that was a movie. Okay. I was trying to make a joke there. I have seen the flicks every now and then. I can do more TV shows than movies too, but I, I have seen a few movies. I can give you very, oh, actually my fit. I, I need to mention my favorite movie that passed this week, Groundhog Day, the 1993 classic starring Bill Murray. Happy Groundhog Day, everybody. Do we know if Poxitani Phil saw his shadow or not? Uh, six more weeks of winter this year. I assume that everyone else wakes up at 4 a.m. I assume Everyone else does what I do and wakes up at 4 a.m. West Coast time to see what Punxsutawney Phil decides. But uh, no, six more weeks of winter this year, even though it's going to be 70s next week where I am. <laughs> I think we have an armadillo that does ours in Texas. I think there's an armadillo here in Texas that does what Punxsutawney Phil does. Oh, um, they have knockoff Punxsutawney Phil's? God damn. They do. Doing it this it depends on the state. I think New Mexico has something too. And <laughs> Greenland is, might have their own thing. I can say this is this armadillo person is very much the Josh McDaniels of weather predicting animals. If they were right in six more weeks of winter, uh, it would make sense with Austin today. 25 degrees with snow flurries going through the state. Exciting. I love it. Great driving yeah, conditions. I, Not unsafe at all. Doesn't bring back post-traumatic stress of last year's winter storm that required me to stay in my walk-in closet for three straight days with no electricity or heat. Yeah, I believe Punxsutawney Phil said it was spring last year, early spring for, <laughs> for last year. So you're saying 
<laughs> Sue Poxitani Phil. All right. Class action lawsuit against Poxitani Phil. Or that's not the right word, but I don't care. We're yeah. Suing Poxitani Phil. Yeah. You, you're not a class action lawsuit, just a, just a regular lawsuit. Uh, you should also sue Bill Murray for that case. You might get more money suing Bill Murray than suing Poxitani Phil. Bill Murray coming after you man all right <laughs> anyway guys uh so hope you enjoyed the episode here at selfless podcast on ig at selfless pod on twitter go ahead and leave us a five-star review go ahead and leave a like on this video go ahead and hit subscribe if you're listening on any major streaming platform it doesn't matter which we enjoy your subscription either way from gg tech sports from kyle Ledbetter. stay safe happy and healthy and we'll see you on the next one